is in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. That's on page 1238 of the Church Bibles. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Um, and the second reading is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, on page 1234. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Do keep um, that second passage Gemma read open. That's where we'll be spending our time. Just going to juggle some books on it. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer. So let's pray. Let he or she who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father God, it's obvious we all have ears this evening and they are given to us to listen. And we pray that you would enable us now to listen to what your Spirit is saying, not only to the churches, but to St. Michael's Church, Chester Square. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Uh, fear. There's a lot of bluster in our day and age about the concept of fear. If you um, type into Google and search that four-letter word, fear, you find a lot of kind of psychobabble um, talking about fear being uh, a weakness we all need to overcome and something which is just basically a hindrance to life. But actually a moment's thought makes us realize that fear is actually a friend, normally. It is a good thing that I'm averse to getting too close to naked flames and to um, bears and to the edges of cliffs. That kind of fear protects me. And we worry about toddlers who have an underdeveloped sense of fear. We want to teach them that the oven is hot and don't go near the fireplace. And fear is a good thing when it is accurate and correctly calibrated. And since fear can be such a friend to us, I must say that I'm very cautious indeed when somebody says to me, oh, don't be afraid of that, when actually that thing is something I'm very afraid of indeed. And when that happens, I really need to assess uh, 
the character and the standing of that person who's trying to comfort me, the person who's saying, oh, don't be afraid of that. I, reckon, I, I want to know, do they fully recognize the danger of which I am afraid? Secondly, what do they know about that danger that I don't know? And thirdly, what can they do about that danger that I can't do? And once those questions have been satisfactorily answered, I will allow myself to be comforted by that comforting person and listen to their recommendation that I not be afraid. But have a look down at verse 10. Right in the heart of our passage this evening, there is a command of comfort. Don't don't be afraid. Someone's writing to us to tell us that. And we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And we find ourselves in the second letter of seven, right at the start of this Bible book. And they're written, these letters, to local churches, real church families, uh, in real places in modern-day Turkey. We think around A.D. 60 to 70, that kind of time. And our letter is written, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. The angel of the church That is to say, maybe a heavenly guardian of that local church, or maybe the church leader, but the angel of the church in Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna, that is in modern-day Izmir, in Turkey. We had a few people in the morning service who'd been there. It's a real place. And by and large, this letter here follows the same structure as every other one of the seven letters here. So it opens with a reminder of some pertinent aspect of Jesus' character and his behavior, See that in verse 8. And then it goes on with a a rigorous assessment of the church in question in verse 9. And then exhortations or warnings in some other letters in verse 10. And then it closes with a wonderful promise to hold on to for the coming week in verse 11. The only significant difference in, in this letter compared to the others is it's one of only two which contain no rebuke at all. So actually, we should all leave feeling encouraged um, as we head into the the week. It's not a rebuking letter. And what we're going to do now, collectively, I suggest as a church, is pick up the letter off the mat where it's landed, open the envelope, and read it with a highlighter in hand and a red pen maybe to underline some bits. And I think we should read the letter uh, thinking, what are we not to fear? And what are the credentials of the person who's telling us not to fear it? What are we not to fear? And who's writing to us? The first thing as we dive in, verse 9, I know your afflictions, we read. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now we know at the time of writing, Smyrna was a very wealthy city. Indeed, it had grown fat on the profit margins to be made, located as it was in the intersection between several kind of trade routes. It was a very wealthy city. It boasted a famous library for academia, a famous stadium for athletic pursuits, and the largest amphitheater on the continent for Friday and Saturday nights, a bit of culture for the people. And it was one of the principal cities of Roman Asia. I think Burberry 
and Paul Smith and Porsche would all have wanted their kind of headquarters to be there, or at least an outpost. It was a, a main wealthy city. But it seems the same couldn't be said for the members of the church in Smyrna. Did you see how they were described and addressed there? Uh, they were afflicted and they were poor. Now, we don't quite know, but a number of things may have contributed to that. Uh, maybe they'd had property literally stolen from them. Um, it may be that they had, their refusal to join in the ritual idolatry of the day had sort of ruled them out of many business transactions. So they'd been um, defriended on LinkedIn or whatever the verb is, and they hadn't been invited to the business networking drinks opportunities, and their own profit margins had shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Or maybe, end of verse 9, it suggests that the significant Jewish population in Smyrna had maybe turned them in to the Roman authorities as people who do not worship Caesar, as every good Roman citizen was meant to do. But whatever the specific reason was, as a result of their faith, the Christians in Smyrna were in their overdrafts, had an eye on their bank accounts towards the end of the month. They were really conscious of money because they were poor. And they were being slandered, not just, I take it, behind their backs, but in front of their faces. And that, to say the least, must have been hard. Let's take poverty, for example. Poverty is not just difficult because everyone needs money to live. That's obvious. But, but also anyone here who's ever been made redundant will know that poverty um, can take away our self-esteem. We tend to view it as a mark of how we are valued. And so here are this bunch of Christians in this wealthy city, Smyrna, who are completely undervalued by those around them, viewed as worthless by their neighbors. Self-esteem down through their boots, I take it. And to top it all, they were living in a city which was dripping with wealth. I suppose it's rather like some parts of London, this part of London. Living in a city where the cars and the salons and the boutiques and the suits that people were wearing just screamed at them wealth that you do not have. Rubbed their poverty in their faces. And the point is this. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know. The Lord Jesus Christ, who writes this letter via the Apostle John, says he hasn't missed any of these difficulties in their lives. He says, I know. I know what your Monday to Friday, Saturday to Sunday struggles are. I know. And friends, it may be that there are some here for whom that is a deep, deep comfort this evening. I don't know, I'm not a mind reader, but maybe somebody here has taken a less well-paying job than they could have taken as a result of Christian ethics. Or maybe you're just giving your finances away so generously that you cannot compete with the Joneses next door or your colleague in the office. And you're so aware, maybe from their Facebook feed, maybe from the little comments they drop in conversation, of their holidays. The car is there on the drive, their children's education, whatever the, the thing is, but you cannot compete anymore because of your Christian faith, because of your generosity. And so as you walk up Elizabeth Street and gaze in the kind of boutiques down this road, 
it kind of bugs you because you think, I could afford that if I hadn't given away so much, if I hadn't taken that job, if I wasn't a Christian. And as that pop-up ad comes up as you're innocently searching Google for this or that, it bugs you. Because, you know, you could have bought that if you weren't living so radically for Christ. Or maybe you're a teenager and you go to the Christian meeting in school or you come to church on a Sunday and you know you could be one of the most popular guys in the school. you got all the necessary things on the CV, good at the football, funny. But actually you know people talk behind your back because they know you're a Christian and you hang out with the oddballs at school and it really bugs you. And here's the wonderful thing from this letter to start with. Jesus Christ says, I know. I know your afflictions. And I know your poverty. I know what it's like. I don't know about you, but do you find it tempting to write Christ off in his commands and his promises sometimes? I remember as a teenager, sometimes receiving life advice from, let's call her Aunt Agatha, to save her own identity. But she's someone who is so far removed from my teenage life that although her advice was sweet and well-meaning, I could never accept it because it was bonkers. Do you you know what I mean? It can be easy to treat the Lord Jesus Christ like that, some sort of radical idealist who aims for 100% and we know we'll never get it, so we write him off entirely. A sort of Aunt Agatha creature. But he's not like that, is he? He knows. He knows our struggles and what our weeks are like. I know your afflictions and your poverty. And all of that is worth bearing in mind as we come to the second heading, because the second heading may sound just a little bit nutty. We do well to remember it comes from a realist in Christ. Second heading, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer, verse 10. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. It seems that the Smyrnian situation was hotting up. Someone was turning the thermostat up in terms of persecution. Uh, Poverty is one thing, but prison is quite another. I'm sure you'd agree. Now, I think there are three categories, broadly speaking, of human fear or things we're afraid of as human beings. See what you think. First, maybe we have fears relating to material things like property or money or stocks and shares. We we kind of fear losing those things. And the Smyrnian Christians had been there, done that, got the T-shirt, poverty. Second, we may have fears relating to other people. What does he think of me? What might they think of me? That's why public speaking, I think, is one of the things that people are always in the top ten fears. Fears about people. And the Smyrnian Christians have been there, done that, got the t-shirt, slander, affliction. But the third category we, we might call pain and punishment. And here Jesus Christ says to them, don't be afraid of pain, punishment, prison. Not because they won't come, but just don't be afraid of them despite their coming. Incidentally, the 10 days here, people debate the significance of that. The point seems to be that it's for a limited period of time, their imprisonment. 
a limited period. But limited or not, it will come. Don't be afraid of it. Now, by and large, I reckon that the kind of people who get locked up in the UK are the kind of people who should be locked up. Now, I'm sure there are some exceptions to the rule, and how tragic would that be? But by and large, I praise God, we have a a fair justice system. But there's the odd thing in public debate at the moment, which gives me, as a Christian person, pause for thought. Most especially, I mean, Ben was praying about something which pertains to this, but the anti-extremism laws which are being drafted at the moment as we speak just down the road. At present, they look set to outlaw, and I quote, the vocal or active opposition to fundamental British values, including democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, and the mutual respect and tolerance of different faiths and beliefs. Now, there is a lot in me when I hear that that wants to tick that and say, that is fantastic, I love that. But I'm sure you're aware, if you ever listen to Radio 4, that that is such a broad set of values, such a broad definition, that it makes me nervous as a Christian. Because it makes me think that we as the church could well find ourselves on the wrong side of that legislation in years to come. What might these anti-extremism laws make of a Lord Jesus Christ who holds radically orthodox sexual ethics views? Or make of a Lord Jesus Christ who holds to exclusive capital T truth claims in the marketplace of religion? I'm not sure. Even when those things are proclaimed in generosity and love, I don't know. It makes me nervous. And if things are about to hot up here, London, the UK, as they were in Smyrna, Jesus Christ says this, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. But doesn't it make you want to ask the question, why? Why on earth should I not be afraid? I would have thought of all the things to be afraid of. Prison is pretty high up the list. That would be a bad week in the office for me if I ended up there. It would be horrific, tragic. And he says, don't be afraid. And I want to ask why. But before we find the reason, Jesus hits us with another imperative, and it's a big one, end of verse 10. Be faithful even to the point of death. In other words, if living as a Christian becomes illegal... Stick at it and go to prison. If living as a Christian becomes lethal, stick at it and die. Be faithful even to the point of death. A Christian living in Smyrna at the time this letter was received went by the now unpopular name of Polycarp. If you ever have a child, I'd Recommend it to consider. We may be able to usher it into the top ten once again. But he was there living in Smyrna, and we think he was in his mid-twenties, maybe the sort of age of some of us here, when this letter arrived. And a few years later, he was um, made the Bishop of Smyrna. Quite an important position. And if we fast forward from that moment, 60 years, so he's no longer in his mid-twenties, he's now an 86-year-old man, He was rounded up by an angry mob of uh, Jews and pagans in Smyrna, and he was burnt at the stake for his faith. 
And when he was being rounded up, he's alleged to have said this. I bless you, Heavenly Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share in the cup of Christ. I obviously didn't know Polycarp personally. I don't know whether he had a good long-term memory. But it wouldn't surprise me if he had remembered this verse. Be faithful, even to the point of death. What courage. I don't know about you, even as I admire Polycarp, as I imagine that situation unfolding in my mind's eye, I shudder. Do you? It scares me, that sort of thing. And honestly, if I can speak very personally for a moment, with the rise of ISIS and ISIL across our screens the last year or so, I found myself wondering, just very personally, how would I respond to someone who was forcing me to make that choice between my Christ and my life? Would I make the right choice there? Would I stand up and be counted? Would I be faithful even to the point of death? And I know from conversations with some of you, you're thinking about that as well. I mean, I look at Polycarp with wonder. Presumably, with a simple sentence of recantation, he could have avoided that sticky end. But he chose not to say those things. Be faithful even to the point of death. And it makes me ask that question, why again? How? How was it possible for Polycarp not to be afraid of what he was about to suffer? Well, the secret, and this is glorious, is in the end of verse 10. I want, I've been praying that this would really lodge in our hearts and our minds as we go. This is the answer to the why. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you, says Jesus Christ, I'll give you the crown of life. And so our fourth point, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Why? Be faithful even to the point of death. How? Because God will protect and crown you even in death. Now apparently Smyrna was very well known for its athletic games. So much so that um, its city logo, if you saw some headed notepaper from Smyrna, would have had a crown on it or a wreath, the kind of crown or wreath that an athlete was awarded as the victor's crown. And so when we come to this verse, I'll give you the crown of life, it's not talking about a royal crown for Elizabeth II, but talking about a, a gold medal sort of thing in our language. And so it takes us back to London 2012. Do you remember Super Saturday when we won gold medal after gold medal within just that glorious hour? if you're from Great Britain. It was amazing. And it's that moment being spoken about here where the athletes are ushered up and there's that podium and the winner walks up to the top of the podium and it's that hush. And then the crowd erupting in applause and joy. And it always seems to bring a tear from the eye, even of the hardest athlete, doesn't it? That moment as they're crowned, as they're given the medal. That is that moment that's been spoken about here. 
I've never run or competed in the Olympics myself, but I would imagine if you get a gold medal, all the pain and the struggle of those four years of training and those early mornings just fade in that moment. You think it's worth it. And here, for the Smyrnian Christians, is that moment when all of the poverty they had endured as a result of their faith just evaporated away in their mind's eye. They'd come into the riches of verse 9, but you are rich. I take it that this was the moment when all the unpopularity they had endured, the slander, the affliction, just ebbed away as they heard those words from the Lord Jesus Christ, well done, my good and faithful servant, and the crowd erupts with praise. I, I take it that if they died a martyr's death, the pain of that just ebbed away, a long-forgotten memory as they were welcomed in and ushered into an eternity that couldn't hurt them. End of verse 11. For this is not just a crown, it's the crown of life. This is eternal life, it's victory. And Jesus says it will be like that, guaranteed for anyone here, you don't have to be called Polycarp, who stays faithful to him, whatever the cost, even to the end. And who is the prize giver? Don't you always find at the Olympic ceremony, there's always some dignitary whom nobody knows and needs to be introduced over an echoing tannoy. You think, who's this? Well, have a look. Verse 8. These are the words of him who is an unknown dignitary who you shouldn't care about. Now, these are the words of him who is the first capital F, the last capital L, the one who died and came to life again. Friends, the one doing the crowning on this last day is God himself. He's the one who goes by the graffiti tag name of first and last In other words, did you have one of those timelines? Do you remember if you cast your mind back to primary school or to primary school teacher, hey, you know, history, these timelines, and the Romans were always there somewhere with a Roman soldier, and you have this timeline. Do you know what I mean? You draw one of those, and you go back as far as you've got the time, energy, ink, and inclination to go, round and round your classroom, back and back and back and back and back. And once you've run out of ink, you say, have we now preceded God? Is God now in the future? God says, no, I am who I am. I'm always in the present tense. I am the first. And then if you get a new pen and go round and round and round the other way, as far into the future as you can be bothered to go on that timeline, and you ask the question, is God now in the past? Have we now succeeded him? He answers, no, I am who I am. I'm always in the present tense. I'm capital L, the last and the reason Jesus takes that name here is that we need to know that somebody has got our back if we're going to die for them. I need to know that somebody who is in control of my last moments, even after my last moments, I need to know that if I'm going to embrace martyrdom. And so Jesus is the one who has the last say. He is the one who has the last laugh. He is the one who has the last move on the chessboard of our lives. He is reliable even after we die. Now, if there's anyone here wondering whether all of this is wishful thinking, 
religious fiction written by a fear of death. I wish it were so, so I'm going to say it is so. Then where's the proof, you might be wondering? How can we reliably say, yes, this will happen? Because it's a high-stakes game, martyrdom, being killed for our faith as Christians. How do you test Jesus' claim to be the first and the last? I think it's at the end of verse 8, isn't it? The first and the last who died. And then he says, read this part of my CV very carefully indeed. And who came to life again. So how do you test his claim to be the last? I want to suggest you throw an ending at him, the ultimate ending at him, and you see whether he can outlast it himself. I want to suggest that you throw the ultimate full stop at the Lord Jesus Christ and see if he can keep on writing. Or you throw the ultimate terminus at him and see if he can keep on going himself. You say you're the last? Well, try this. Will this stop you? I want to suggest that you throw death at him and see whether he keeps on living. Say you're the last? Try this. And as Christians, we know, don't we? We know. The answer is that he came back to life. We say it in the creed every Sunday. If you're not a Christian here or you're not convinced, then I would encourage you to look into the evidence for the resurrection. In the moments where I wonder whether I'm backing the wrong horse as a Christian, I go back to the evidence for the resurrection and it reminds me it's rock solid. He's worth dying for. He's got our backs. He's the last. He died and came back to life again. So do you remember where we began? I'm very cautious indeed when someone says to me, oh, John, don't be afraid of this, when I'm actually quite afraid of the thing. And I said, I need to know the credentials of the one who is comforting me before I believe them. Does he fully recognize the danger of which I'm afraid? Yes. He says, I know. He's a realist. He's not the spiritual Aunt Agatha who's removed. Uh, What does he know about death that I don't know? Well, that it's defeated. He's died and risen again, come back to life again. What can he do about that fear that I can't do? Well, he can take me into his arms and take me safely through the grave and beyond. I think I'm persuaded. I can read this letter and believe it. I can allow myself to be comforted by the writer. So I'm going to close now with an exchange, a famous exchange. You may have heard it before, but it bears repeating. And it's an exchange between a 4th century church father with another great name, John Chrysostom. And he's speaking with the empress, Eudoxia. It's a real exchange in history, 4th century. And Eudoxia was threatening him with banishment for his preaching and for his faith. Let me read it to you. It's quite short. John says this, You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. She says, But I will kill you. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God, said John. Well, then I'll take away your treasures, she says. No, you cannot. For my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. Okay, well then I'll drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. He says, no, you cannot. 
For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Shall we pray? He or she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to St. Michael's, Chester Square this evening. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Heavenly Father, help us to demonstrate that we heard your Spirit this evening in the way we live our lives radically for you, whatever the cost, this week. Help us not to be afraid of what we might be about to suffer. We praise you that you're the first. We praise you perhaps supremely that you're the last, that you died and you came to life again. 